Section 3 of The Lieutenant and Others. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa. The Lieutenant and Others by Sapper. The Lieutenant, Chapters 5 and 6. Chapter 5 now, in reading over what I have written concerning the commencement of Gerald Ainsworth's pilgrimage in the smiling fields of Flanders, I feel that I too have merited the rebuke so quietly given him in those words. They have failed. He had lost his sense of proportion, about which another and a worthier pen than mine has written in connection with this same game of war, and I too have perhaps given those who may read these pages an unfair impression. That bombardment of which I have told was not an ordinary one, it is true, but at the same time it was not anything very extraordinary. Considered by the men who occupied those trenches, it was the nearest approach to a complete cataclysm of the universe that can be conceived of considered by the men who sit behind and move the pawns on the board, it was a furious bombardment of one five-hundredth of what they were responsible for. Moreover, it had failed. But it is not to be wondered at that when, some time later, Gerald was attempting to give his father some impression of what that morning had been like, that worthy old gentleman should have expressed great surprise and indignation that it was not reported in the papers, and stated with some freedom his opinion on the muzzling of the English press. And yet, would it not have been making a mountain out of a molehill, a great battle out of nothing at all? Yes, nothing at all. For in this struggle, what are fifty, a hundred men, provided the enemy does not get what he wants? Much to the relatives of the fifty, but nothing to the result. Hard but true. A somewhat bitter fact. However, all this is a digression. We left Gerald, I think, with the remnants of his platoon scattered along what once were trenches, holding them till under cover of night a fresh working party could come up and rebuild them. The wire in front of him had been destroyed by the shell fire, and nothing but a piece of field, pitted and torn up by explosions, separated him from the Germans fifty yards away. The Germans facing him had established a superiority of rifle fire. Secure in practically undamaged trenches, did a man but show his hat opposite them it was riddled with bullets. Wherefore, after a couple of the remnants of the platoon had ill-advisedly shown their hats with their heads inside them, and a second later had subsided with a choking grunt and a final kick, the survivors confined their attention to the bottom of the trench, and from it sorted out the bombs and the flares and the reserve ammunition. Also they sorted out other things, which we need not specify, and threw them out behind, where in time, perhaps, they might be decently buried. And then, having done all they could, they sat down with their backs to the parapet and hoped for the best. 
It was not till half past eight that night that the German artillery condescended to notice them again, and then for about ten minutes they put a desultory fire of shrapnel on to the trenches. Then the range lengthened. Now Gerald was no fool, and suddenly the words of the sapper captain in the morning ran through his brain. They may make a small local advance under cover of dark. It was almost dark. They had shelled the trenches, apparently aimlessly, and now were shooting behind on the support trenches. Why? He groveled in the bottom of the trench and found a very pistol and flare. Up it shot into the air, and as it did, he saw them. The whole line saw them, and the fun started. The mad minute started in earnest all along the trench. The trench that enfiladed the ground in front of him got going with a maxim. Flares flew up into the air from all along the line, falling behind the advancing Germans. For about ten minutes the most glorious pandemonium reigned. Everyone was mixed up endways. In places, the English had come out of their trenches and were going for them grunting and snarling in the open with bayonets. In places, they were fighting in our trenches. In places, we were in theirs. The maxim had ceased for fear of hitting its own men, and without intermission, flares went up from both sides. Suddenly, on top of Gerald as he stood blazing away into the dusk, there loomed a Bavarian officer. It was touch and go, and if a sergeant beside him had shot a second later, this yarn might have had to close here. As it was, the bullet from the Bavarian officer's revolver found a home in the earth, and the Bavarian himself fell with a crash to the bottom of the trench. But it could not go on. In places, they were breaking. In places, they were broken. But unfortunately, in one place, they had got through. At the extreme left of Gerald's trench, which he had been unable to reach during the day owing to a huge hole blown out of the parapet, the Germans had scrambled in. Elsewhere, they had fallen back to their own lines, pursued the whole way by men stabbing and hacking at them, their eyes red with the lust of killing getting a bit of their own back after the unspeakable hell of the morning. And what but a quarter of an hour previously had been bare open ground was now covered with motionless bodies, from which, later, a few wounded would drag themselves back to their own people. It was when comparative quiet again reigned that one of his sergeants came to Gerald and reported the uninvited appearance of the Germans away down on the left. Now the presence of the enemy in your own trench in small parties is, I understand, a thing that has frequently puzzled those who read about it at home. It is, however, a thing of fairly common occurrence and a small, hostile party on the offensive may prove extremely unpleasant. The whole thing becomes a question of bombs and rapidity of action. Also, I will willingly lay two to one on the side that gets off the mark first. A traverse, as everyone knows, is a great lump of the original soil left standing when the trench is dug, 
and round which the trench is cut. Its object is to localize the bursts of high explosive shell. As you cannot see round a corner or through solid earth, it is, therefore, obvious that you cannot see from one bit of fire trench into the next, though you can get there by walking round the traverse. If, however, there is a man sitting waiting for you with a rifle, this process is not to be recommended, as he will certainly get in the first shot at a range of about five yards. Now all that Gerald knew, and, to his credit be it said, he acted with promptitude and without hesitation, and the man who does that in war, as in other things, generally acts with success. Bombs! he cried to the sergeant who had told him. Bombs of all sorts, plum and apple, hairbrush, any damn thing you can get, and all the men at once. They scrabbled them out of the debris and searched for them in the mud where they had been buried, and at last the party was ready, ten in all. What's the jest? said the sapper officer, dropping into the trench as they were being mustered. Bosch is lower down. We're bombing them out, answered Gerald. Then, for heaven's sake, see the fuse isn't too long, he replied. Just over an inch is enough for traverse work, or they'll bung em back. An inch of the fuse used will burn about a second and a half. With that, the party was off, led by Gerald and they crept on till suddenly the sergeant gripped his arm and muttered, They're behind the next traverse. And from behind the earth in front came a guttural exclamation in German. Gerald, gripping a rifle, was quivering with excitement. He stole forward to where the trench bent back behind the traverse, while the two front men came up each with a bomb in his hand to throw, when lighted, over the top. It was at the precise moment that Gerald gave them the signal to light that he met his first German face to face. For, finding all was silent, the enemy had decided to make a little tour of inspection on his own. And just as the two bombs were lit and propelled over the traverse, a stout and perspiring Bavarian bumped his head almost onto Gerald's rifle. For a moment Gerald was as surprised as the crouching German, but only for a moment. For the Bavarian's death grunt, the crack of the rifle, and the roar of the two bombs were almost simultaneous. On em, boys, he shouted, jerking out his empty cartridge, and they scrambled round over the body into the next bit of trench. Four Germans lay stiff, and two were struggling to get round the next traverse. One did, and one did not. The sergeant got him first. Up to the next traverse, and the same process over again. But move, move, for heaven's sake, move, is the motto if you want to keep him on the run. And if a German wounded tries to trip you, well, halt, everyone, and send for the doctor and a motor ambulance for the poor chap. I don't think. For three traverses they went on, and then a voice came from the other side. We surrender! Oh, Gerald, Gerald, would that one who knew the sweeps had been there with you. 
after all that's been written, why, oh, why did you not tell them to come to you instead of going to them? Surely you have read of their callous swinishness, and your sergeant's life was in your keeping. There were three of them when he rounded the traverse, and three shots rang out at the same moment. One hit his sergeant in the head, and one hit his sergeant in the heart, and one passed between his own left arm and his body, cutting his coat. It was then he saw red, and so did the men who streamed after him. Let's stick him, sir, said the men, though the Germans had now thrown down their rifles. Nothing of the sort, he snarled. Which of you said, we surrender? And with the veins in his forehead standing out, he glared at the Germans. I did, answered one of them, smiling. We really thought you would not be such fools as to be taken in. Extraordinary, wasn't it? laughed Gerald. Yes, the ass period had quite passed. His laugh caused the smiling German to stop smiling. As you avoided our bombs entirely owing to an unwarrantable mistake on my part, which cost me the life, he swallowed once or twice and his hands clenched, the life of a valued man, I can only remedy this loss on your part to the best of my ability. Ah, well, answered the German, we shall no doubt meet after the war and laugh over the episode. All is fair in love and, he shrugged his shoulders, and now we are your prisoners. Quite so, drawled Gerald, all ready for a first-class ticket to Donnington Hall. You shall now have it. Bring, my lads, three hairbrush grenades and put in four inches of fuse. That's about eight seconds, my dear friends. And he smiled on the Germans, who were now groveling on their knees. Gott in Himmel! screamed the one who had spoken. You would murder us after we have surrendered? Gerald pointed to the dead sergeant lying huddled in the corner. You had surrendered before you murdered him, he remarked quietly. Chapter 6 And now I come to the last day that our friend was privileged to spend in the lotus land of Ypres. When he returns, let us hope we shall have moved on. The place is a good deal too lotusy for most of us, if the heavily scented air is any criterion. He had had most of the excitements which those who come over to this entertainment can expect to get, and on this last day he got the bonne bouche, the cream of the sideshows. His battalion had come to the reserve trenches, as I have said, and from there they had gone to an abode of cellars, where the men could wash and rest, for nothing save a direct hit with a seventeen-inch shell could damage them. It was at three o'clock in the morning that Gerald was violently roused from his slumbers by his captain. Get to the men at once, he ordered. Respirators to be put on. They're making the hell of a gas attack. 
It seems to have missed these cellars, but one never knows. Then go and see what's happening. Upstairs a confused babble of sound was going on, and upstairs Gerald sprinted after he had seen his men. A strange smell hung about in the summer air, the peculiar stench of chlorine. Luckily only mild, made him cough and his eyes smart and finally shut. The water poured out of them as eddies of wind made the gas stronger, and for a time he stood there utterly helpless. All around him men grunted and coughed and lurched about helpless as he was, deprived of sight for the time. He heard odd fragments of conversation. The front line has broken, gassed out. They're through in thousands. We're done for. Let's go. And then, clear above the shelling, which had now started furiously, he heard a voice which he recognized as belonging to one of the staff officers of his brigade. The first man who does go, I shoot. Sit down. Keep your pads on and wait for orders. Down the road came a few stragglers, men who had broken from the front line and from the reserve trenches. One or two were slightly gassed, one or two were wounded, several were neither. And what are you doing? asked the same officer, planting himself in the middle of the road. Wounded men in there. The remainder joined that party and wait for orders. But they're through us, muttered a man, pushing past the officer. I'm off. Did you hear my order? said the officer sternly catching his arm. Get in there, or I'll shoot you. Let me go curse you, howled the man, shaking off his hand and lurching on, while the others paused in hesitation. There was a sharp crack, and with a grunt the man subsided in the road twitching. The staff officer turned round and with his revolver still in his hand, pointed to the party sitting down by Gerald. Without a word, the men went there. I am going up to see what's happening, he told Gerald. Get these men below in the cellars and keep them there. It's the shelling will do the damage now. The gas is over. Was it a bad attack? asked Gerald. One of the worst we've had. One part of the line has been pierced, but the men have stuck it well everywhere else. Mercifully, we've almost avoided it here. And with that, he was gone. Two hours later, the wounded started to come down the road. And with them, men who had really been gassed badly, probably through having mislaid their pads and not being able to find them in time. Some were on stretchers and some were walking. Some ran a few steps and then collapsed, panting and gasping on the road. Some lurched into the ditch and lay there vomiting, and on them all, impartially, there rained down a hail of shrapnel. In the dressing station they arranged them in rows. And that day two sweating doctors handled over seven hundred cases. For the gassed men, wheezing, gasping, fighting for breath, with their faces green and their foreheads dripping, they could do next to nothing. In ambulances they got them away as fast as they could down the shell-swept road, 
and still they came pouring in without cessation. Gerald, watching the poor struggling crowd, swore softly under his breath. He hadn't seen gas in its effects before, and the first time you see it you generally feel like killing something German to ease the strain. And it was at this moment that a bursting shell scattered a bunch of staggering men and almost blew an officer coming down the road into his arms. The officer smiled at him feebly and then wiped some froth from his lips with the back of his hand. He stood there swaying, his breath coming and going like a horse that's touched in the wind after being galloped. Out of one sleeve the blood was pouring, and with his hand he'd made a great smear of blood across his mouth. His face was green, and the gas sweat was all over him. "'Good God!' muttered Gerald. "'Sit down, my dear fellow!' No, he answered, I must get on. He spoke slowly and with terrible difficulty, passing his tongue over his lips from time to time and staring fixedly at Gerald. Where is the general? I have been sent to give him a message. <gasps> with a dreadful tearing noise in his throat, he started to try to be sick. The paroxysm lasted about five minutes, and then he pulled himself together again. Give me the message. I'll take it, said Gerald quietly. Listen, said the officer, sitting down and heaving backwards and forwards. Listen, for I'm done in. They've broken through on our left. There aren't many of them, but our left has had to give. Another paroxysm came on, and the poor lad rolled in the gutter, twisting and squirming. The gas caught me in my dugout, he croaked, and I couldn't find my pad. Just like me, always lose everything. Gerald supported his head and again wiped the froth from his mouth. Our men, and the wheezing voice continued at intervals. Our men are gassed to blazes. But they're all up there. They've not fallen back, except on the left, where they were up in the air. Poor chaps lying in heaps, being sick, noise in trenches like bellows out of work. It's a swine's game, this gas. Again the tearing and gasping. Tell the gunners to fire. For God's sake, get them to fire. They're infantry all over the place. And we're getting about one shell of ours to twenty of theirs. Oh, God, this is awful. And he tore at his collar. I'll go and find the general at once, said Gerald. The officer nodded. Good. I'll stop here till I'm better. And then I suppose I must go back to the boys. Poor devils 
and I'm a way out of it. He croaked hideously. My men never budged, and now they're being shelled to bits, and they're helpless. Get reserves, man. Get reinforcements. For heaven's sake, hurry. No one seems to know what's happening, and it's been awful up there. And so Gerald left him sitting by the side of the road, his eyes staring fixedly at nothing, periodically wiping the froth from his lips with a hand that left a crimson smear wherever it touched. And there the stretcher-bearers found him ten minutes later. One of hundreds of similar cases reported so tersely as suffering from gas poisoning. And here, having staggered across our horizon, he passes out again. Whether he lived or died I know not, that man with the shattered arm and wet green face, who had brought back the message from the men whose left flank was surrounded. All I know is that a quarter of an hour later Gerald was giving the report to the general, a report which confirmed the opinion of the situation which the staff had already formed. Half an hour later Gerald's battalion was ordered to counterattack, and, if they could get as far, fill the gap. Exactly five minutes from the time when the battalion passed the reserve trenches and, in extended order, pressed forward, my hero took it. He took it in the leg, and he took it in the arm from a high-explosive shrapnel, and went down for the count. They didn't get back all the ground lost, but they did very nearly, though of this Gerald knew nothing. He was bad, distinctly bad. He remembers dimly the agony the ambulance gave his arm that night, and has hazy recollections of a dear woman in a hospital train. He had landed at Havre on a Tuesday. That day, fortnight, he left Boulogne in a hospital ship. Back up the ancestral home founded on something in tins he will go in due course. Back to those same beautiful things. Creations, was the word, who graced the ancestral drawing room some months ago. The situation is fraught with peril. As I have whispered, his income will be something over five figures one day, and the creations have taken up nursing. But somehow or other, his views on life have changed, and I think the creations may have their work cut out. End of section three. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa.